Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Philip Hall returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest book, Albert and the Whale. Philip Hall lives and works in Southampton. His books include Leviathan, or The Whale, winner of the BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction. He is a professor of creative writing at the University of Southampton and co-curator of the Moby Dick Big Read and the Ancient Mariner Big Read. And we're going to be talking about Philip's latest book today, which is Albert and the Whale. Philip, welcome back to Little Atoms. It's great to be here, Neil. Tell me what the idea behind this one is, first of all. So I got really interested. I, was, uh, I saw um, for the first time in the flesh, as it were, Abajero's um, woodcuts and engravings in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And, and it just astonished me. It was almost as they'd been run off a computer printer now. You know, they're so vibrant, these kind of cartoons almost they're almost cgi animations actually and i i suddenly made the connection which i'd, I'd known before and i think i referred to it in in leviathan actually i only realized this only recently but that this idea that albert durer went to the coast of the netherlands to zeeland to see and hopefully sketch a stranded whale and uh, spoiler alert he didn't see one that a storm struck up and um, although this is a real, revealed in the first few pages of the book, so it's not really a spoiler. But the idea of his artistic ambition being so leviathanic, he determined to draw the biggest creature on earth, and it eluded him. And the, so that sense of, for one thing, I wanted to know what would have happened if Dura had drawn the whale. And we know that his rhinoceros his drawing of a rhinoceros, which became a, a woodcut and was went into eight editions, was his bestseller, was the way we saw rhinoceroses for 500 years, even though he never saw a rhinoceros. He drew that from uh, sketches of uh, an Indian rhinoceros which had been sent to the um, king of Portugal in 1515. So I had, I, it's this notion of what if, it's kind of a, you know, a virtual history, but it was also a way of looking at the way artists have represented the natural world and how that has affected the natural world and how the natural world has affected them. 
And that trip to Zealand that he takes, you talk about in the book, I mean, you said what happened, he, he gets there too late to see the beach whale, but uh, along the way, it's a, it's a frightening and exciting trip. What happens? Yeah, well, he's gone. He's actually fled Nuremberg, his hometown, because uh, a new wave of the plague has overtaken the, the, the city. Uh, an emergency administration has been put in place. And he, along with his wealthy friends, the people who can afford to, go to the coast. They go to the coast of the healthy sea air. So they go to the low countries, which are part of the Habsburg Empire. And, and Jura's patron is the Holy Roman Emperor, um, Maximilian, who's actually just died. And he's waiting for a new emperor to be crowned. So the story has always been that he goes to the Netherlands to wait for the coronation of Charles V, but in fact he was fleeing the plague as much as anything else. And so he's there with these very wealthy people, very, very wealthy people, and they're gambling and drinking, and he gets word of this stranded whale, and it's said to be the largest whale ever seen. They're completely ridiculous, you know, it's almost a mile long, you know, one of the reports. And Jura has always been totally fascinated with the natural world since he was a child, in a, in a quite a scientific way. He has a very analytical brain, and that's why he draws such extraordinary images of animals and plants. So they set off, they charter a boat, and this huge storm breaks out. The boat smashes into the side of the quay uh, on the island in Zeeland where they're trying to reach this whale. Most of the people get off the boat, but the boat pulls back as a, a, an offshore wind blows the back and suddenly it's like a scene from the tempest and everyone's going crazy the sailors are panicking Jura has to take control he's like you know he's like a sort of he's almost like a christ-like figure actually uh and he almost it's almost like he, he calms the sea itself such a his magician-like powers and he gets the boat back in uh, and they survive but of course, it's the same tempest that has has washed the whale away. So yeah, it's quite a formative event in Jura's life for, for reasons I don't really want to give away now because it does give away too much. But uh, it's a defining episode in Jura's life. We're going to talk in a moment about Jura as really the first sort of modern artist and I'm talking in terms of means of production here rather than in terms of style obviously but the first industrial artist but before we get to that let's just talk about his life as an artist because at this period it is very much he is still beholden to patrons and he spends a lot of his time basically trying to talk up the next in line to the throne to see whether they will throw him a few coins as well what was his working life like as an artist in that respect? Well, he, he, he really was a working artist, as you say, Neil. He was a, a journeyman, you know. He was travelling around to patrons, rich patrons, uh, making these paintings, which were very expensive. And when pigment was so expensive then, ultramarine, even gold leaf that was used. It was very expensive to make paintings. It was very time expensive too, you know. It, it took a long time. And to be honest, his paintings are not really the most interesting aspect of his art. And it's when... As you say, he discovered a way of reproducing his art, that things really stepped up a real, really was a step change in his artistic practice and in his reach. And he was brought up, his father was um, a silversmith, but he was apprenticed to a, a printer in Nuremberg. So he learned the process of printing. Printing was a new, it was the internet of the day. I mean, people like Martin Luther were saying, this is madness, we can't unleash printing on people, it's going to affect their minds you know it was an extraordinary 
promulgation of words, but also images. And that's what Durer really nailed down because he created these images, which even now seem to be, it's uh, Erasmus said, Durer does in black and white what other artists can only do in colour. And so Durer was producing these um, images, most famously a series of images illustrating the apocalypse, which he printed in 1498, just before the turn of the century, great fantasy, a lot of fears about what's going to happen. Is this the second coming? You know, people were building new towers to escape the deluge that was expected. Uh, And of course, the plague was around. There's all this sort of uncertainty. And Dewar kind of encapsulates those fears in graphic imagery. They are like anime straight to comics really and um and of course what the, the most important thing about this is, is that ordinary people can buy these things they paste them up on their walls they paste them on wardrobe doors they're like pinups he was like warhol he was producing his own art his own work he was the first artist to do that and to sell it as well uh, he had agents all around europe so that's how he became this extraordinary certainly continental-wide artist. Obviously, once he could reproduce the paintings so ordinary people can buy them, they become a lot lot cheaper to buy. But I was also fascinated by how some of the things you mentioned in the book about how, for him, as working as an artist before that was also, you know, not something he was making much money out of. And you talk about how, for instance, you know, a, a tailor would earn more money and therefore if he was painting a picture of somebody in a in a nice set of clothes, those clothes would have cost more than he would make from painting the picture. Yeah, I mean, he complained actually because it, a, a formative influence on Jura was his were his two trips to Venice where he learned the art of perspective, which was almost a kind of magical technique. It was a secret guarded by artists that no one wanted to teach him it. But he, he writes to his friend um, back in Nuremberg, he says, here they treat me like a lord. In Nuremberg, they call me a parasite. And he was really annoyed at the way his home city of Nuremberg sort of disparaged him almost. They certainly really pretty much ignored him there. I think there was only one or two commissions from the city for him to uh, create paintings. And that's why in his portraits, you see him, I mean, he's so vain anyway. The the three oil paintings that he made from um, 1495, 1498 to 1500, which he kind of progressively becomes more dandified that the pictures always focus on his hands and his hands because he's really saying these are the hands of a genius look at my hands as much as my face and so yeah he was really in fact it was when he went to the low countries in 1520 and people were giving him standing ovations when he went to sort of social events he realised that he actually was really famous. I think, I think this is the whole thing about the German thing, you, you know, you don't big yourself up, you know, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, that was a kind of frustration for him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Philip Hall and we're talking about his new book, Albert and the Whale. And Philip, you've just been talking about the self-portraits. There's three self-portraits reproduced in this book. I want to talk about some of the um, some of the works of art that he's most famous for that, um, that are reproduced in the book. So let's just stick with the, um, the self-portraits first of all. There's one that's reproduced on the front cover of the book as well of him where the one where he's, he's He's holding is it some thistles in his hand and as you said he's got a particularly um dandyish look about him tell me some more about this particular portrait well i mean it's sort of outrageous because he's i mean he that painting must have taken him at least six months to paint and he's a young man he's meant to be making his way in the world he's not meant to be painting portraits of himself he's never ever going to sell a portrait of himself that's just commercial suicide plus the fact that he paints himself as you know, he's got this off-the-shoulder ruched shirt. He's got this tasseled hat, which looks a bit like a jellyfish on his head. He's got these long red locks. I mean, it wasn't really fashionable to have, you know, unkempt long red locks. They're almost like dreadlocks. He's holding in his hand this, it, it is actually, it's a sea thistle, uh, an eryngium. And its significance is still entirely mysterious to us. We don't know what it be tokens at all but there's a definite sense of romance about him a kind of grungy romance he looks like a teenager he's got bum fluff he's got this red bum fluff he can't you know he can't grow a beard yet he's really gauche looking but he's very confrontational it's like so what are you looking at what do you think you are looking at what do you think i'm capable of and he's already proved himself to be incredibly capable of drawing himself of drawing nature and of having an almost, it's almost as though he's had this sort of signed this Faustian contract because this talent seems to come out of nowhere. Although he was tutored by an artist, it's way in excess of what you would expect of someone of that age. 
Um, and it has been since he was 13, painted, he drew his own portrait at the age of 13. It's uncanny. It's something quite spooky about it. So then you proceed through these, you know, if I can cut to the next image, which is when he's come back from Italy and he's dressed in severe black and white, but with a lot of tassels, chamois leather gloves. He's got a beard now, but it's incredibly manicured and oiled. We learn that actually Leonardo's disciples all had this kind of very sexy beard. And this is what he's kind of rocking. He's rocking this look. And he's almost dressed in Prada, you know, and it's a real statement of, I know exactly what I am now. I know that I can bring back the lessons I've learned in Venice, not only in painting, but he learned to fence and he learned to dance. He's a gentleman. He's not an artisan. He's not this grubby oil paint stained employee who's being you know, drafted in to dash off a quick countess or merchant prince or two, but he, he's someone who has vastly more ambitious ideas than that. There is what he's learned in Venice right there over his left shoulder. Is uh, there's a you know there's a window with a um, a landscape receded off into the distance right there. Yeah, it looks as though he's on a train. Looks like he's going <laughs> over the Alps in the, on the train. And because he is actually one of the first artists who starts painting landscapes for their own sake. You know, he paints these landscapes rather like Turner. These watercolors, they're really really astonishing. When you see them in the flesh, you just think that's impossible. That that's five hundred years old. There's an acuity, a sharpness to his eye. And indeed, his eye, the way his eye looks you, his eyes were slightly wonky. Um, he had a kind of astigmatic eye that sort of went off in one direction. And it's almost as though he's seeing the world differently. Very unnerving gaze. It, it's something that really fixes you with, with that look. And there was always the um, tradition that, you know, when you were painting the eye, you'd paint a window reflected in it. And the window was meant to be a kind of an allegory of your soul, a window into a man's soul. But then when he paints this, the third painting in that series, in 1500, he paints himself looking full on, straight ahead at the, the viewer. And he paints himself as Christ. He changes his features to look sort of Palestinian. His hair is incredible. It's like curled and oiled. His friends are joking that, you know, his his boy has to spend hours curling and oiling his master's hair. It's a very, very disconcerting image because it doesn't leave you. Uh, it sort of follows you around the room, rather like the portrait of Kitchener, you know. Apparently his dog used to bark when he saw it because he thought it was his master and his master was kind of like staring him out. This portrait has caused people to react down the centuries, hasn't it? It has. In 1900, someone walked into the Munich Gallery where it was held and still is held and scratched the eyes out with a hat pin, almost like the, uh, the scene in Shenandoah when the uh, pig's eyes is slit open. He aroused very strong feelings because there was almost no veil in between you and this work, you know, this kind of sense of um, artifice. He was representing the world as he saw it, almost directly. That's why, you know, have the animals that he painted and drew, the hair crouched on the kitchen floor, the rhinoceros clanking along like a kind of armoured dinosaur, the clump of turf, which he just uproots from a field and just paints this clump of weeds. I mean, no one painted dirt before Dura. 
he was he was as I say almost like a scientist in his approach to um, the depiction of the natural world, and there was something blasphemous about that because God owned every image. Any image that was made was by God's decree and God's benevolence. So it was kind of outrageous to kind of assume that you could outdo God, you could outdo creation. I think that's why people both in, in awe and sometimes fear of him. All of these, there's four nature pictures that are reproduced here in the book. All of them are incredible. The detail on the hair is just unbelievable. But I wanted to talk more about the two pictures of the rollers. There's one, the roller that's obviously hanging, um, and then just a section of its wing, both of which have colours that just seem to come off the page that just doesn't seem credible that these pictures were painted in, in 1512 at all. No, absolutely. And I was, I've been lucky enough to see the original paintings, the watercolours in the Albertina Gallery in, in Vienna. Um, they're not, they, they don't travel. They're so fragile. Um, the curator doesn't even like moving them from the, the storeroom. So it was a very amazing thing to stand in front of these images and to see, you know, the hair's whiskers are outlined with one hair brush a line of white to give it a kind of three-dimensional appearance. And the same with the blue roller, the bird, who has these kind of, it's like a bird of paradise, really. It's like a, an angel that he's snatched down from the sky. And to just paint the wing, again, seems quite surreal. And it is as if it's been torn off an angel. Or, of course, the art historians look at it the other way around. They think that um, Jura is actually drawing, making these studies of these animal parts so that he could sort of like fix them onto an angel so he could depict a, a wing on an angel very accurately. But it's a nonsense because <laughs> you could do anything. I mean, no one knows exactly what an angel's wing looks like because angels don't exist. Well, mostly they don't, apart from my guardian angel. And so, so there's that sense of, you know, why was he doing it? And it's like the self-portraits. Why was he doing it? Why was he spending so much time? And the curator, the Albertini, posited this theory that actually they were kind of showpieces. When she went into Jura's studio, his showroom, and you saw these pictures on the wall, and you were just think, wow, this man is beyond any artist I've ever seen, you know, in his ability to portray objects, living things. So that, that may have been one reason why he drew them. But to me, it just seems over and beyond that. It seems he's doing it because he can and because he wants to. I think that's a really important thing, that he's doing things because he wants to do them, not because he's been commissioned to do them. Staying with, with angels for a minute, I just wanted to talk about one more of his artworks, which is um, the piece known as Melancholia, which is a picture of an angel, and, and how this artwork has basically resonated down the ages. Again, partly because it's so modern, from its title, for instance, it's called Melancholia Number 1. Well, so is it is it an addition? Um, is there going to be further, you know, instalments of this scene? The great clutter of images in this engraving are unbelievable. It's like a Magritte painting. There's a dodecahedron, just this huge sculptural object in front of the angel for no apparent reason at all. There's a dog asleep. There's a ladder leaning against what looks like a sea wall. And, the, and there's the sea in the distance. But over the sea is a kind of bat-like thing which is holding a banner on which the the painting's title the drawing's title the engraving's title is represented none of these things should make sense but it's because of the incredible exactitude with which Jura has created these images 
even now, people don't really know how he got the amount, that amount of detail. I mean, modern artists have tried to reproduce, they've tried to make similar engravings and found it impossible. There is something alchemical about it. And, and we know that a lot of the imagery he's using in that picture have to do with alchemy and Freemasonry. But over and beyond that, it's an image which is talking about the state of melancholy, not as a negative state, but as a positive state of artistic contemplation of this new self, this new individual, this modern person. As you said at the beginning, it's, he is a new kind of artist. He's talking about an existential state. It's a psychological portrait. You can't see it in any other way. It's an incredible, and it's still possibly the most cryptic, most discussed work of art ever created. Just one more thing then. So in the book, there's a, a potential meeting between Dürer and the um, the astronomer and alchemist Faust. And then you talk about how Dürer's influence, his work has resonated down through German art, through Goethe, Thomas Mann, through Wagner, through Friedrich, through Nietzsche. Tell us something about his enduring legacy, particularly in the, the German artistic mind. Well, I suppose because he seems to be the very incarnation of the Germanic ideal, technically brilliant, but dark, with mythological sort of Grimm's fairy tale-like background stuff going on. Deeply romantic too, that's why he appealed to Goethe and Wagner and Nietzsche. But then of course, you don't need me to tell you what that also produced, and Indeed, the fascists took up Jura as in fact, their leader, who I don't like to name, talked about Jura as being the most German of German artists, completely ignoring the fact that he was born um, to a Hungarian refugee and the fact that he, one of his most famous paintings, he depicted himself as a Jew. Jura doesn't deserve that legacy. Um, and I've been very, very great pains to... Uh, not allow that to be um, be the predominant image that we take away from during the 20th century, because he inspired the great modernist writer Thomas Mann, a great humanist, a great anti-fascist. He inspired Marianne Moore, one of the great poets of the 20th century. He inspires people even now, today, uh, and a lot of German artists like Gerhard Richter and Anselm Kiefer, obviously, Joseph Boyce. Um, I saw an amazing uh, photograph by Robert Mapplethorpe of Patti Smith in which she was posed exactly like the 1500 portrait with her long curly hair and her, her hands held in the same gesture that Dürer holds his hands in, the, in that image. Andy Warhol's grave is carved with Jura's praying hands. Um, they're filmed 24-7. You can actually go to the Andy Warhol website and you can see his tombstone uh, filmed 24 hours a day. So there are strange ways in which he drifts into the modern. And he was a very modern person. You know, he was born in the medieval era, but he almost ushered in a modern era. That's what's so powerful about him. So I've been talking to Philip Hall. We've been talking about his new book, Albert and the Whale, which is out in the UK from 40 State. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. It's always my pleasure, Neil. Thanks very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.